uh, we should all be here and ready to go for Passover sometime before 8 so that uh, we don't have any confusion and everybody's settled and, and ready to take it. A lot of Passover is about mood and attitude and everything that goes with it. So uh, that is a very, very solemn evening. So we'll have it shortly after 8 o'clock beginning on Monday evening, Monday the 10th. And then I think you all have the schedule even out on the phone lines by now. Uh, It was sent out with some uh, sermon discs. But on Tuesday... Uh, the 11th, we'll have the service at 1 o'clock. Tuesday at 1 o'clock, our time here. So I think you have the rest of the schedule, and I'm sure we'll be announcing it uh, as we go through. But just briefly, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, uh, it will be at 7 in the evening. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Tuesday at 1, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at 7. Okay. Have you ever met a murderer? I'm sure you've probably talked to some and didn't know it. I had an experience back in the late 60s in Florida where I had a new letter from a person. I think I've related this a time or two in the past, but uh, got in and got settled on his couch, and the first thing he announced was, I am a murderer. I was in prison for murder, and I got out. And uh, that was meant, I'm sure, to shock. And the next question he asked was, would you like some apple juice? Uh, Which gave me conflicting thoughts. (laughs) I finally opted. I'm sure he was thinking in terms of that scripture about if you drink poison or whatever, it will not hurt you and so on. So I briefly considered that and I thought, yeah, I'll have a glass of apple juice. My wife said the same thing. So we had the apple juice, and we didn't keel over, and we went ahead and had a visit. So I know I've met a murderer, unless he was lying to me. What about someone who murders someone, and they are found out, they go to trial, maybe they go through long, long questioning periods, And the trial can drag out, and finally the jury comes out with a verdict of guilty. First degree murder. Then a period of time goes by when they sit in a cell waiting for uh, the sentencing. And they worry, and they talk to their lawyers about it. Am I going to get life without parole? Will I get the death penalty? What's going to happen to me? And... They agitate. Some of them can't stand the pressure and find some way to hang themselves or even kill themselves and bring the sentence early. But finally the day comes when they go back into the courtroom. The jury's assembled. I don't even know whether they assemble the jury at that point, but the judge is there and the lawyers and the sentence is given. You will die in the electric chair or by lethal injection, whichever it is. Either is kind of scary when it's you. So then you go back to death row, and you sit there and wait 
for a time to be announced till you walk that green mile and are put to death. And those are days of weeks, months, even years these days of great conflict, of fear, of night sweats and trembling because you know you've been sentenced to die. So finally the day comes. They unlock your cell for the last time and start you down the hall toward the death chamber. And you have all kinds of things running through your mind. Absolute cold, icy fear grips your guts and they're in a knot. And you're on the verge of going insane because you can't face what's coming. So they get you in, they strap you down, prepare you very clinically. You're full of emotion, but they're just doing their job. You're scared half to death and knowing you're about to be dead. There's no hope. You did the deed. You're about to die. And then in the distance you hear a phone ring. And the governor is called and decided to grant you a reprieve and you're not going to die after all. Oh, what kind of emotion would flood over you when you got the news of that phone call. But let's say the story was a little different. Let's say the governor was in his office and he decided to give you a reprieve. And just as he picked up the phone to call and give that reprieve, Someone walked in and killed the governor. You're going to die anyway. What kind of a story is that? Let's face the facts. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So we have been given, by virtue of having done the deed, the death sentence. Now as human beings, we would like a reprieve from that sentence. We don't want to die physically, and we certainly don't want to die eternally, do we? But someone decided to give us a reprieve. And you know what happened? The governor got killed. We killed the governor. Wasn't someone set to save us and we killed him? Didn't he die for our sins? And therefore, there could be no reprieve because the governor had died. You've got nothing to do but face the death penalty, right? Now, this doesn't happen often. But in the story I'm describing, the governor was miraculously resurrected. He only stayed dead three days. And by that resurrection, there is still a chance for a reprieve. We murdered Christ. I asked you if you had ever met a murderer. 
Have you ever looked in a mirror? You are a murderer. You sinned, and the sin penalty of sin is death. And we would die for our sins unless we get a reprieve. And someone had to die to pay the penalty for our sins so that we don't have to pay it ourselves, right? Now, the worst case scenario in the story I told initially is that someone would shoot the governor. We did it! We killed the governor! His Father in heaven resurrected him. We are guilty of the blood of Emmanuel the King, of the Savior. He came as a Savior. You know what a Savior does? Define Savior for me. A Savior is one who saves. He's one who gets you out of the pickle that you have gotten yourself in and saves you from it. So we have all met a murderer. And we have a room full of murderers right here, including you and me. I don't know whether we think of it in those terms normally. Yes, you understand that intellectually. But do we internalize it? Do we think about it? Do we personalize it? And realize, yes, I am responsible for the death of Christ. Those Jews, those Pharisees in that day may have physically done it. Judas may have betrayed him. But aren't we all very close kin to Judas? Haven't we betrayed our very Savior to the death by committing acts that caused him to have to die so that we could live? So it's a pretty stark reality to face, and as we come to the Passover in a couple of days, we need to look at this very clearly, very soberly and somberly, and examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, whether we truly grasp the meaning of the Passover. How many Passovers have you been to? 30, 40, 50, some of you, or more. What would it hurt if you were to make this the very most meaningful, the deepest, the most emotional of all of those that you have participated in? What would be wrong with making this the very best one of them all? with a clearer understanding of the reality of human existence and ultimate death and eternal destruction unless somehow we're saved out of that. What would be wrong with, with making this one better than any other? Not a thing I can think of. We should grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior We need to grow. We've been examining ourselves now for several days. 
and we don't have much time left. Have we utilized the time, or have we let it slip by? Have we let it act like normal times? If so, shame on us. It's time to get down to serious business and brass tacks. The world is about to implode upon itself. And we need to be sure where our faith, our strength, and our trust really and truly is. And if we really believe in a father and a son who have promised eternal life and can deliver it. We have a human life here on this earth. And it is in jeopardy at times. You have narrowly averted serious injury or death many times in your life. Whether it be by automobile accidents or plane crashes or falling or food poisoning or disease or whatever it may have been. We're physical. And we are all appointed once to die physically. And we take those things into stride. And yet sometimes when we're very, very ill, we fear. We don't really want to die, but fear can take over. We can worry and worry and worry. <laughs> you can maybe literally worry yourself to death instead of dying naturally because of what goes on in the mind. And what goes on in the mind has a great deal to do with physical health. Do we truly, really believe we have a Savior who will save us from ourselves and from Satan and from the conditions that are about to transpire on this earth? You know, it's one thing to sit and muse, to meditate, to think about, even accept the possibility of resurrection and life eternal. But we're not down to the crucial moment, are we? You know, just before people die they often start thinking some very, very serious and sober thoughts, don't they? I think more of those now than I did 50 years ago. I'll guarantee you that. We begin to consider our mortality more. We somehow think we're immortal when we're 20, but at some point we get over that because the aches and pains and traumas and diseases and problems of life make us begin to realize that, yeah, you know, I really am going to die. They're going to throw me in the ground or burn me up or whatever they decide to do. Now, we have seen that trouble is coming on this earth for a long, long time, haven't we? We've waited decades knowing trouble is going to come. But knowing that... And facing it are two different things. It becomes more fearful when the physical conditions are upon us that could cause the trouble instead of just thinking about it as something in the future. So do we believe Christ is alive and will save us? Do we really believe that? Let's consider some scriptures one that comes to mind I'm not going to turn to. It's not just one, but several times in the prophecies about these end times, we're admonished to fear not. Don't fear. He says, don't fear. 
That's easy to say, isn't it? When you have a gun pointed at your head or a knife at your navel, you tend to fear. When people are threatening to drop bombs on you, you tend to fear. The reason he says fear not is because conditions are going to come upon us that would instill fear upon us. Like the judge saying, death. That instills fear. And when we see conditions arising, fear comes. So he says, don't fear. Now that's a tall order when you're actually facing those conditions. Then he says, be strong. Not weak, not namby-pamby, not vacillating, not wavering. Be strong. Now consider your mind and your emotions. Are you weak? Are you sniveling? Are you cowardly? Or are you strong? The third instruction, he gave these to Joshua, he gave them to us in the prophecies, was be of good courage. That's the opposite of cowardice. Good courage. Strong courage. In other words, whatever is coming, be prepared to face it with strength, not with weakness. We are not naturally prepared for that, brethren. If a lion attacks, if a bear rushes, if disease is threatening, a plague is coming, and you're afraid you're going to get it, it's hard to be of good courage. And then he says, and work. You have to be mentally in the attitudes of those first three instructions in order to work efficiently. Fear not, be strong, be of good courage, and work. If you're fearful, if you're weak and you're a coward, it's going to be hard to get anything done. So he's giving good advice for the troubled times that are coming upon us. Now let's go into things that are coming confidently. That's what we need. Go to the book of James. Chapter 1. He says in verse 2, My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. I don't like being tempted. I don't like being tried. But he says, count it joy. Now that's just the opposite of your natural human emotion. You don't like trouble. You like easy sailing. He says, count it joy when you fall into different temptations. Now that takes work. That's not easy to come by. It's easy to sit here and read. But wait till you come under a severe trial or temptation. 
and how hard that is to fight against your nature and your desires to do what you want to do instead of what God says. Knowing this, now here's a basis for counting trouble as joy. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Now we need to be patient, don't we? Some of us have been waiting for a lot of events that are laid out in the Bible to happen now, personally, for 40, 50, 60 years. Knowing, having read, having had these explained to us by Herbert Armstrong back in the 50s even, that these things were coming. Living with that awareness all these years and expecting it. Not doing certain things we might have done in life thinking it might be cut short and we wouldn't have time to do that. Wondering if we would ever get married and have children, and now we have great-grandchildren. Trials, troubles, and tribulations, if we survive them, create patience. Patience is a godly virtue. Now we see things happening in the world... And we get a little impatient, like Habakkuk did. How long, O oh Lord? How long do we have to go on like we are? It's been on my mind a lot lately. We've been decimated. We're in poor health, most of us. Or just plain old, if not in poor health. Not many left. And utterly futile and unable to accomplish anything on our own. No strength, no power, no ability, nothing. Unable. Are we patient in all this? Do we waver? Do we think, man, alive, I don't know where I can handle this or not, or how long is this going to be? So we get, begin to get an, a ridge of attitude, like Habakkuk did. And then he finally settled down and says, Attitude adjustment hour. I just need to sit down and be patient, knowing God is in charge. God knows exactly what He is doing. He has a specific timetable. He had, these, he had this whole thing planned out before man was ever created. The Father and He who would become the Son sat down, planned out, creating a world an earth that we live on, putting us on it and setting up an environment and an ecological system that would support us. And they, they took into account the rebellion of Satan. They took into account human nature that they were going to create. And they even thought it through to the very end of the whole process so that the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and all the other parts of the Bible could be written thousands of years before today, where we are on the edge of all this coming to pass. They know precisely everything that is going to happen. Do we believe that? Do we worry about Satan and about the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and the North Koreans? Do we get unsettled and discomfited and concerned? 
We just bombed Syria yesterday or the day before. And all kinds of hullabaloo and threats from Russia started coming back at us. And now we've bombed another town even after all those threats. It's getting scary out there. There are people who are saying World War III has started and it's just going to escalate. There are a lot of people that are scared right now of what is about to happen. The Bible says the Middle East is going to be the catalyst of it and we'll get our horn broken after we break some horns in the Middle East. Things are getting back on schedule and starting to pop. Are we there? We may very well be. These are scary times we're living in. It's not a time to fear. It's not a time to worry. It's a time to be strong and of good courage and be prepared to work when God shows us what next to do. <coughs> Trying our faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and entire, wanting nothing. Patience is one of the hardest things to come by, isn't it? Give me patience and give, me that, give it to me now, we say. Human beings tend to be impatient because they want what they want and they want it now. We don't want to wait. We certainly don't want to depend on somebody else. We want to have what we have and do it now. So he says, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Are we wise with what we do? Are we wise in what we say? Are we wise in what we think? If we lack wisdom, ask God, and He'll give it to us. But there's a condition here. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. You know what human beings tend to do? They tend to blow hot and cold. They tend to waver. They tend to be insecure and unsure. They tend to worry. Now he says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He is, it is His will for us all to be wise, okay? He says if we ask anything in His will, it will be done. And He doesn't want us to be fools. He wants every last one of us to be wise. So we can confidently go before God and ask for wisdom. And won't we need it now when we're facing what's happening in the world or about to? But there is that word, nothing wavering. So you have to go and ask in confidence, believing it will happen. I will no longer be a fool, but God will give me wisdom. Now Solomon asked for wisdom to rule Israel, and God gave it to him. He says, if you had asked for other things, for your personal betterment, I might not have done it. But you asked something according my, to my will. I wanted Israel to be ruled in wisdom. That's according to God's will. 
So he asked, out of confidence, and it happened. He that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the eternal. Now, God wants us to have wisdom. He wants us to have love. He wants us to have obedience. He wants us to have a lot of things. Joy, peace, patience, fruit of His Spirit. He wants us to have those things. Why don't we? We've asked for them, haven't we? Now, maybe we have those to some degree, but why don't we have more than we do? Maybe we have asked and wavered. Maybe we don't believe that He can and will fulfill His will if we come boldly to the throne of grace. Are we supposed to come whining and crying and cowardly and not expecting it to happen? No. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you know what boldness is? It's coming and asking in power, in strength, in courage, in belief. Boldly means you think it's going to happen. You believe it's going to happen. Now, why wouldn't it? If you're asking something that is within the will of God, and wisdom is. Love is. So why come crying and sniveling and apologetic? The Scripture tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. To ask in belief that it will happen. Now we can whine and cry and bellyache from now on about what we think we need and don't have. It says that you won't receive anything from God with that attitude. Now we have to face reality, as I said at the beginning. We have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's cause for a guilty conscience. That's cause for insecurity. Isn't it? Having killed the governor. But you know what? He's our Savior. He desires to save us from ourselves and Satan and the world. That's His will. So we need to come boldly and confidently before Him to ask for the forgiveness of our sins, nothing wavering, believing that they are forgiven and not continuing in them. You cannot be bold and courageous and strong if your conscience is still bothering you, can you? Can you confidently ask mom for a cookie if you stole three and they're in your pocket? Likely not. Get rid of them. How are you going to get rid of them? Through Christ, whom you killed, 
and who died for you. That's how you get rid of them. You come boldly and ask for forgiveness. I think Psalm 51, though said in great humility and meekness, was a very bold prayer of David. It started out with an admittance of who and what he was and what he had done. And then it moved into the cleansing period of please cleanse me and wash me, purge me with hyssop, and so on. And it ended with great boldness and strength that if you do forgive me, I will move forward and I will preach your name in the great congregation. So that prayer gained strength and boldness line by line as he went through it and concluded with confidence that he would be forgiven. Now that's what we must do. Do you believe Christ is a Savior or not? Come on, let's get with it. Do you believe it or not? Do you believe He can forgive you or not? Can you come boldly and ask for forgiveness and then walk in faith the way you need to walk? That's what James is telling us here. You can have anything according to God's will if you ask in faith, not wavering. But if you waver, you're like the waves of the sea and you will not receive anything of God. Now that's his word. That's his instruction. That's true. If you don't come with the right attitude, you're not going to get anything from God. That's just bottom line. This is, this is real simple language. This isn't something Paul wrote that was hard to understand. This is just a plain, easy statement. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you say, I'm going to follow God, and you follow your human nature, you say, I'm going to have a godly attitude, and you have a human attitude, then your mind and your conscience and your emotions are all messed up. And you have trouble making progress because of the fears and psychoses and difficulties that human emotion brings. So he says, straighten up. Don't waver. Paul said it differently. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Don't shrink back in fear. You see, there's there's understanding or knowing or reading that Christ is our Savior. And it's quite another level to believe it. To truly believe it from the depth of your being. Let's move on to James three, uh, 2. Let's go down to... Verse 16. Well, verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, somebody is truly poor and, and they're having trouble staying warm and staying alive. Uh, and you say, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled. I have nice, kind, warm, cuddly, fuzzy thoughts about you, and I hope everything goes well for you. Uh, be warmed and filled. 
Notwithstanding, you give him them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? You can tell him be warmed and filled, but if you don't give him something to warm him and fill him, he's going to go away naked and hungry still. And you haven't done a bit of good. Now, you might go away saying, I had nice thoughts toward that person. Nice thoughts don't get it. Did you ever eat a thought? <laughs> it, it, it won't nourish you much. Now, he makes a point here in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. I believe in Christ. I believe He died for me. I believe my sins are forgiven. I believe I'll be in the kingdom of God. Well, so far, so good. You can't stop there. That's belief or faith by itself. It's empty faith. It means nothing. Faith, if it has not works, is dead, being all by itself. doesn't do you any good to believe it if you don't do what is necessary to achieve it. Yes, a man may say, you have faith, but I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So faith and works go hand in hand. People try to separate them. Protestants try to say it's faith and grace alone. You don't need works or obedience. No. James makes it quite clear here. If you believe it, what are you doing about it? Are you making it happen? You believe that there is one God. Well, okay, that's great. I, you know, I believe in one God. Nothing wrong with that. You know what? You do good by that, but the devils also believe that and tremble. Satan knows there's only one God. So do all the demons. So if you believe in one God, well, you're, you're up with Satan and the demons. <laughs> At that point, you're equal with them. They know that. But will you know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now, there is a threshold Satan and the demons will not cross. They know there's one God, but they will not follow what he says. They won't do what they're supposed to do. Now, there's where you and I need to separate from Satan and the demons. We need to go beyond believing there's one God and begin to give the works of God, to do the things God says to do. He goes on to explain, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, there's you an example. Abraham believed there was a God. Abraham had communicated with God. But then God said, but I promised you and that you waited for a long, long time. And then by divine miracle, you and Sarah, both way beyond age, engendered by a divine miracle. He did not waver. He was not as the waves of the sea. He saddled his ass, gathered up his son, 
took some servants with him, and went out to do what God had said to do. Now, what went through Abraham's mind? I'm sure there were an awful lot of emotions that came up. I'm sure there was a lot of wondering, what does this mean? Why should I do this? Why would God tell me this? I don't want to lose my son. I love my son. How can I kill him myself with my own hand? Now, he may have had a lot of conflicting emotions. I wasn't there inside his head. I don't know exactly what went on. But I do know that he set out to do exactly what God told him to do, no matter what his emotions told him. Was there fear involved? I'm sure that brought fear and insecurity and frustration and questioning to his mind. But he passed all those tests. He didn't waver. He was not fearful. He didn't let fear take over. He was of good courage. He was strong. And he went forward to work. To do the work that God gave him to do. Now there is performance under pressure. He didn't let the conditions around him and what the implications were cause him not to do what God clearly said to do. See you how faith worked with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. He did what God told him, and it all worked out fine, didn't it? And he was so relieved, and so was Isaac, when it was all said and done. And I think they went home with great joy and thanksgiving and praise to God that that trial and temptation had turned out perfectly. It was worth the trial. It was worth the temptation because it worked joy in the long run. They went home joyfully, singing, laughing, praising God that they didn't either one of them have to go through what had been prescribed. Now God is bringing the world down upon our ears and you and I if we are not protected, are going to die. They will come after us tooth and toenail harder than they will against anyone else. Believe it. It's going to happen. Anybody who believes in God is going to be Satan's first target and his minions on this earth's first target. We are not just on the target. We are the bullseye for Satan and all of his servants on this earth. How are we going to react? James tells us how to react. He gives us an example here. And then he says, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Abraham believed God and it was counted for faith. But God didn't know until Abraham performed. Then God said, 
I have reached another threshold with you. Now I know you. God did not know for sure what Abraham would do until he put him to the test. He does not know for sure what you and I will do until he puts us to the test. We better prepare for the test, had we not. Gives us another example. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Somebody asked me the other day about lying. And I recounted this story. Rahab lied. And you know what that was accounted to her for? Righteousness. She protected God's servants by lying and preserving their lives. You know where Rahab is going to be? Now, she was a despicable harlot, making her living, renting her body out to anybody that wanted it. A couple of guys came to her door that weren't there to buy favors, but were scared that they were going to die. (coughs) She hid them and then lied about their presence. And as a result, she's going to be in the kingdom of God. That lie was not accounted to her as sin. It was accounted to her as righteousness. You ever thought about that? (coughs) The Ten Commandments do not say, Thou shalt not lie. You read that on the uh, Sunday school abridged version. Not to tell a little white lie. It says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't say anything that is untrue or accusative or gossiping about your neighbor. Don't say anything that would hurt your neighbor. A lie isn't in there. <coughs> Maybe I need to do a little study on that and give a sermon about it. See what the Hebrew actually says. <coughs> but we have an absolute example here where someone told an untruth and was granted eternal life as a result. Now there's a conundrum for you. Is it okay to kill? The Ten Commandments apparently say thou shalt do no murder. But didn't Christ say if someone breaks into your house you would have stopped it if you knew what time they were going to break in? How do you stop it? What if they come in with guns and knives and they threaten to kill you and your wife and children and they start raping your 12-year-old daughter? Can you kill them in righteousness? I would. I wouldn't hesitate. I'd go grab a shotgun and blow them off my daughter or my wife. That would not be doing murder. (laughs) That would be saving lives. Isn't that what Rahab did? She saved their lives from death. 
Did Christ always tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth? No. He spoke in parables so they would not understand. Now, did what he did what he say ring true? Was it true? Yes, it was. But he didn't tell the whole story, and he didn't say it in such a way that they would get it. In fact, they went away believing something different than what he had said, and he allowed that. David acted like he was absolutely a stark, raving, insane lunatic one time, making weird noises and slobbering at the mouth so they'd think he was insane and not kill him. He was lying. He was as sane as you can get. In fact, he's pretty clever and pretty smart, too. (laughs) I don't think it was accounted to him for sin. What about when David and his men took the showbread? It was clearly illegal to do, and Christ commented on it. They broke the law by eating that showbread. But God did not account it as evil or sin because of the circumstance. He did not impute sin to them. Now, isn't there a statement in the New Testament where God says a man is blessed if God does not impute sin to him? Because what you did was to help someone else to save their life. And what you did may not have been completely and totally legal. But saving the life had greater value than what it was that you did. Now that puts Rahab in perspective. She saved the lives of God's servants by lying. She's going to be in the kingdom of God. She was justified in what she did. Now, was she scared? Yes, she was. She knew if she hid those men, and it was found out, she would die. They would have killed her immediately. But she believed, somehow, that those men of Israel were of God, and she was going to risk her life to save theirs. And she put on a straight face and lied very, very effectively. They couldn't see through her and what she was telling. She did a a tremendous acting job there. And God imputed it for righteousness. God wants to see our works. How we will react under severe conditions. Now, she could have thought, well, I'm a good little Protestant. I can't lie. So, you guys are going to (laughs) die. You know, she could have said that. But she weighed the situation and she decided it would be wise to hide them and lie. She learned wisdom there. And she had faith, somehow, some way, that it would all turn out right and it did. And look where she's going to be in the kingdom of God. (coughs) How much do we believe? Now, we've all sinned 
We've sinned greatly. So it's harder for us to believe. I have seen people, I've talked to people who had come to understand the truth. Uh, I can remember a prostitute who had written in for a visit. And she was having severe difficulty (coughs) believing that Christ could forgive her of her sins and her occupation. Moving very heavily on her mind. Now, she hadn't done anything that we haven't done. Is murdering Christ worse? Yeah. Murdering Christ is the worst thing you can do. But whatever sin you've committed, it's heinous and it is the death penalty. You know, what we have to do, brethren, is we have to come to believe that no matter what the sin we have committed, God can forgive us and Christ died for that sin. Whatever it was, He died for it. And you need to come to the Passover believing that with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Between now and then, you need to begin to cleanse your heart and your mind and your conscience and pray boldly before the throne of grace that your sins be forgiven. And go to Passover and take the bread and the wine believing that you are clean and pure and forgiven by the Holy Father. Is that too much to ask? To really believe it? Not doubt it? Not waver? To come boldly before the throne of grace? Review David's prayer in Psalm 51 and see how it gained strength and power. And by the end, he was confident and secure. Let's go to James 5. Verse 13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Eternal. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Eternal shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now, faith is belief. It's knowing. And then following it up with works. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. People take this out of context and say we we should confess all of our sins to each other. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about telling people, I'm sick. I have an affliction here. My body is faulty. And if there's a physical sin that may be causing it by eating the wrong thing, drinking the wrong thing, living a life wrong, maybe you could confess that. But it's about healing here. 
And you can't come willy-nilly. You can't come wavering. We already read, if you come wavering, you can't expect God to do anything. He says, come boldly. Boldly means boldly. It means attacking it the way a lion attacks a lamb. With absolute confidence that he can kill and eat the lamb. A lion does not approach a lamb saying, I hope I can outrun you. I hope my teeth are long enough. I hope you'll stand still. No. He goes after it like he knows what he's doing and he's going to accomplish his purpose. You need to approach Christ about healing and the Father the same way Jacob approached Christ when he wrestled with him all night and would not turn loose. Powerfully, boldly, strongly, confidently. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Elijah, in other words, was no different whatsoever than you and me. He was just like us. That's what he's saying. He wasn't anything special. He had every phobia, every fear, every conflict, every difficulty that you and I have. How did James know that? Because he had the same ones. Didn't Elijah fear the queen? Didn't he run from her? Oh yeah, he killed all those priests of Baal, and then he ran from a woman. He was afraid. She's going to kill me. <clears throat> so by the very story we know that he was subject to the same passions we are. But he overcame those temptations, those trials, those troubles, those fears. And he prayed earnestly, boldly, earnestly, not fearfully, that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, change his mind. What's the truth here? The truth is, we better believe what we say we believe. We better live by it. Let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. We're here to be bold and strong and believe and help and strengthen others and that will cover a multitude of sin and help people toward salvation. Now that's a good work. We have to set the example of faith and power for the world, an example of faith set on a hill that cannot be hid, believing Christ in what he tells us to do. And we have to be a light on a hill for the rest of the church. Because our faith, our strength, our power, our belief, our works 
are manifest and that we trust God to take care of us. And if we do, He has promised us He will. Do you remember Zechariah 2, where he says he will be a defense and a wall of fire around us? Do you remember Micah 4, where he says if you'll leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness, he will protect you there? Do you believe Micah 5, where he says when the Assyrian comes into our land with the absolute intent purpose of murdering, raping, and killing every one of us, that he will send seven, even eight, of the leaders of the church at that time out and they will send the Assyrian fleeing before them. Do you believe that? When he tells us in Isaiah 8 not to fear the conspiracy of the world, the new world order, the ten kings as they will finally appear. Do we believe him when he says, don't fear them, fear me and I will protect you. Do you believe that? Or do you read about all these bombings and things that are happening and threats of civil war and martial law and all that and become fearful and timid? We are to be bold as a lion and come before God and expect Him to fulfill these promises. He says He will. Now, He is going to cause it to happen to those who believe Him. Now, this is not written to anybody who doesn't, isn't given the understanding. It's written to the ones that understand it. Now, there are a lot of people who are going to gather 10% of what was the church. That's predicted. And only the ones who come to understand it, who are given the understanding and are then stirred by God to action, are the only ones that are going to be saved out of it. They will come to understand and then they will act on that and they will come. Even as you have. You read Micah 4 and you came here. You've come that far. This is no time to quit now. This is no time to waver. This is no time to say, oh, we failed. Now, maybe we have in some ways, but God has not. And if we remain faithful and we produce the works, He will save us. He will do these things. It doesn't matter how big we are. Don't we get the lesson of Gideon? He can cut it from 10,000 to 300 and do exactly what he wants done. He can, he can reduce us from 150 to 15 and still get it done. That's less of a reduction than Gideon went through. Do we believe God? Do we believe His Word? I don't have time to go there now, but what about Matthew 8? They were out in the boat. The storms began to come. The waves began to rise. 
the waves got so high that the disciples were very fearful of their lives. And Christ was asleep down below. He wasn't worried. He needed a nap. He had just been dealing with a lot of people. He was emotionally and physically wrung out. So he says, I'm going to take a nap. Did he know how to read the weather? Yes, he did. Did he know a storm was coming? I'm sure he did. So he says, okay, I'll take a nap. The disciples got very, very afraid. And then he came. They woke him up. Save us! So he spoke to the sea and the wind, and everything calmed down. He went back and finished his nap. And they said, this must be God. Well, it was. He could control the wind and the waves. Now, there was another time they were out on the boat. And Christ had told him, go on ahead. They got out there, and they got into another storm. And again, they were afraid the boat was going to sink. And they looked, and here comes Christ walking across the water. He was walking across the water. And Peter said, is that you, Lord? Now we're in Matthew 14. And he said, yeah, this is me. Well, if it's really you, can I walk out there and see you? Sure, come on. Peter jumped out of the boat and started walking across the water. Because he was bold as a lion and he believed that he could go to Christ. But then something happened. He looked down, apparently, and he saw that this is water. A man can't walk on water. These are waves, and that's wind, and this, this cannot be. And he sunk. Glub. <laughs> as long as he had his eye on Christ, and believed in Christ, and believed that Christ could do what Christ said he would do, Peter literally walked on the water. But when he doubted, that blessing was taken away. He wavered like the waves he was walking on. And he received nothing from Christ. The communication, the connection was broken by conditions around him. And so he could no longer go forward. Then he looked back up at Christ and Christ put out his hand and he saved him anyway. Because he would have drowned. Now you and I have put our eye on Christ. And if we look at conditions around us, we will sink and we will drown. That's why he tells us, don't look at the conditions, look at me. Don't look at the New World Order. Don't look at the Ten Kings. Don't look at the Mark of the Beast. And I can't buy and sell. What am I going to do? Trust me, he says. Come boldly to the throne of grace and believe and you shall be saved. I could go on and on with these examples in Hebrews 11 and all through the Bible. 
where God says, look to me, believe me, do what I say, and I will save you. Now we need to come boldly to that throne. You need to come with great humility and meekness and fear of God who holds the keys to life and death. But you need to come with confidence. Now that's why we read last week in 1 Corinthians 11 that we cannot take it in a wrong attitude, in a wrong manner, unworthily, because we bring death upon ourselves. So he says, examine yourself and then come. Now I'm talking about this today because I don't want you to come with an evil conscience, with a wrong kind of fear and guilt, with doubt that your sin will be forgiven, <clears throat> because he says don't come that way. Examine yourself, see your weaknesses, see your faults, admit your sins before him, and come saying, I killed you, I murdered you. Please give me a reprieve through your death and your resurrection so that I might live in spite of myself. And come with the conviction that it will happen. Not wavering. God will give answers to those who believe and who act on that belief. You have to act on the belief that you have a Savior. It's that fundamental. It's that simple. You have to believe that He is alive and that He can save you from yourself. And go with that confidence and that strength and that conviction that you will be forgiven. And you will.